Jesus, thank you uh, for your word. Thank you for your son, God. I'm talking to the father there. Uh, Lord, uh, thank you that you came down as a man and you, yeah, fulfilled a righteous life. You fulfilled all of the expectation of the ages. You were perfect humanity where we fell short. And Lord, you called us into following you. So Lord, today I ask that you would speak to us through your word. Speak to us through the word about Jesus that we find here today uh, and grow us to be more like him. We pray it in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Um, now, isn't this, just, just side note again, isn't this one of those passages in the Bible that you could tend to skip over if we're honest? You know, like you get, not, 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 not the baptism bit, that's, that's well and good. But, uh, but when, we, when, we, when you get up to there being a guy named Admin, um, you know, we could do with him here. Uh, <laughs> we've got Deb, so that's good. Um, and Jackie. Uh, but uh, yeah, like like the the son of 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 does get a little bit repetitious for us, and yet uh, we're going to find as we look at this today that there's something really profound happening in this passage of scripture. But first, have you ever played Mousetrap? Yeah, no, yeah, maybe you played Mousetrap, which is odd because I don't think we had a version of it as kids, did we? Um, Okay, that's my mum for anyone who doesn't know. Um, I don't mind it, but uh, <laughs> uh, no, we were we were at the uh, uh, in-laws' place recently. My in-laws, my wife's parents, those guys actually, and uh, we the kids were playing Mousetrap. It's this uh, fun game, um, depending on who you are, and um, you set up all of these pieces that are all working towards the one singular goal of catching the mouse, um, and and. There's, there's, yeah, it's wonderful. There's all these bits, like there's a basket that falls down and there's like a seesaw bit that moves and I can't remember the rest, but it's fun. Um, the critical part of Mousetrap is the ball. Uh, you've got this, this ball bearing you thing. It's about that big, about the size of a marble, about the weight of a marble. You could use a marble if you lose it. Um, and once you've set everything else up, you put the marble in and you set it rolling. Uh, and, and in a lot of ways, where we're at in Luke's gospel today is kind of like that moment in a game of Mousetrap. Luke's going to emphasize to us in this passage today uh, the, the pieces that have been put together uh, to come to this moment, not, not just in the life of Jesus, but throughout all of history from God's creation of the world. God has been preparing a perfect plan, uh, the single goal of which is the redemption of his people who, live with him, who will live with him. And when Jesus entered the scene back in, back in Luke chapters 1 to 2, you could sort of see that as the ball going onto the game, you know, being sat in place. Uh, but although he's, he's, he's growing, we get these statements like the, the boy Jesus grew and matured in favour with God and with man. Uh, although that's happening, he's not visibly moving toward the goal yet. Uh, the goal, the critical moment that, that he's moving toward, that we're aiming toward here, is when Jesus goes to the cross and dies and he defeats sin, and then he rises victorious over death, and that's how he redeems the people of God. Uh, isn't that good news for us? But he hasn't been visibly moving towards that. He's been in Nazareth with his family, uh, as far as we're aware. Uh, but that changes today. today. Today's the day that the ball starts rolling, so to speak. Uh, as Jesus is baptized and rises up from the waters, God goes 
public with the identity of Jesus and, and his public ministry, which rolls relentlessly toward the cross, begins. And to give you a bit of a, a bird's eye view of what's coming up, uh, you could kind of separate what's between here and the cross into a few chunks. His ministry centers for the first several chapters in, in Galilee and in the region thereof. Uh, and, and he kind of bounces around in there. And then kind of from nine, chapter 9, I think, verse 51 onwards, with the ball goes on a downhill slope towards Jerusalem, uh, where we find that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. So he's moving towards the cross then. But even now, he's moving and he's on his way. And in, and in this passage of the Bible, something incredible happens. Uh, something that even seems a little bit contradictory when you first hear it. And it's something that we'll continue to see throughout the ministry of Jesus on his way to the cross. We see here that Jesus is perfectly unique. No one like him. And yet also our model of what we are to become. Now, do you see how those two things kind of jar each other a little bit? Jesus is unique. There's no one else like him and no one could be like him. And we see that really heavily in what we see here in the Bible today. And yet we follow after him and we become like him. Raise your hand if you think I'm contradicting myself. Come on, be honest. There's a sort of here, everyone else is just being shy because they know that when I ask a question, it's a trap. Uh, (laughs) A bounce trap, yeah. I mean, it's at least a little bit confusing. Let, let, let me explain it. And to do that, we're going we're gonna to do something a bit different. We're going to fly past this passage twice today rather than once. And the first time, we're going to look at it from the angle of the uniqueness of Jesus. So come with me to it now. We're in, we're in Luke chapter 3. If you hadn't already got it open, feel free to do that now. We're in verse 21 of Luke chapter 3. And, and the first thing that we get here is a unique appearance um, At the opening of this piece of scripture, we read about the baptism of Jesus. We'll come back to that. Uh, But as he rises from the water, he prays. And at that moment, the heavens are torn open. One of the gospel authors tells us about this moment, that they are literally torn apart. Uh, And the Holy Spirit comes down like a dove on Jesus. We're not going to go into whether he was actually a dove or whether it was like a dove descends. It's not that important. Uh, At this moment, the perfect divinity of Jesus, though, is obviously on display, right? Um, Without a word, a statement's being made from heaven as to who this guy is. This is one who is different to you. You If you'd been standing there and watching, you wouldn't have gone, oh, that's what the last guy did when he came out. Uh, And incidentally, the spirit uh, descends not because Jesus lacks Uh, God, because he needs to become the presence of God in this world. Uh, That's what some cults have made of this passage. Uh, But because he is God the Son, with whom the Father is well pleased, and so there is no barrier between the Spirit and Jesus. That's, That's the statement that's being made here. Unlike the whole of humanity around him, he is perfectly at peace with God. He is God. And then second... Uh, That silent statement of the Spirit's descent is shattered with a very large, loud statement that's spoken. A voice thunders from heaven and says, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The voice reminds us that this is the Son of God. Even the Son, uh, God the Son, right? 
like, like the, the, the very presence of God himself is here with us. Uh, in fact, in, indirectly, it even says a little bit more than that even. Um, this is usually taken, these words, to be a, a reference to two places in Scripture. Um, Psalm 42, uh, Psalm 2 rather, and Isaiah 42. Um, and, and, and Psalm 42 is this messianic psalm looking forward to the coming king, the, the chosen saviour of God's people. And Isaiah 42 looks forward to the, the suffering servant, the, the, the Messiah who will come. They're both passages that emphasise, they look forward to the kingship of Jesus and the, the saviourship of Jesus. So even the, the kingship of Jesus is actually being displayed to any Jew there. And remember, the people coming out and being baptised were Jews, so they would have seen these references coming out in what God's saying here. And we shouldn't miss that at this moment, the whole of the Trinity is on display. At, at the start of the ministry of Jesus, isn't this amazing? At the moment that the ball starts rolling, all three members of the Trinity are there getting it going. They're commencing the process that will see its culmination in God's plan through history. Like this, this, is, this is the moment that's going to lead to the moment, and they're all there to kick it off. Jesus is prayerfully stepping into his role. The Spirit is visibly empowering his ministry, and the Father is declaring Jesus' fitness for the task and his identity. And finally, we get to the genealogy, right? This is the skippable bit, uh, we would be led to believe. And yet the genealogy makes a number of really profound statements to us that we shouldn't miss. And I, I'm not going to be bold like Luke. I'm not going to read the whole thing out again. Yeah, I should, I should briefly stay, say here the, um, there's a bit of a, an issue for us in the fact that there are significant differences between the genealogy of Matthew and the genealogy of Luke. Uh, I'm not going to dig super deep into that one. Uh, there are some explanations, possible explanations, for why that works out. People theorise things like the fact that Joseph may have had an adopted father as well as an actual father before him, and so there would be separate genealogies. Different people see it as a Matthew going through the royal succession after David, whereas, and that's, that's the primary issue is between David and Joseph. Um, that's where they, they differ. So maybe Matthew's going through the succession of the kings, whereas Luke is going through more of a bloodline succession to Jesus. Uh, but if you want to, all I really want to say is that if you want a really good summary of that, hit up the ESV Study Bible. It's got a fantastic little side article in there on exactly how that works and the different options you have there. But there's another big difference between the two uh, that we should focus on and we will focus on him, that's that uh, Matthew, in his genealogy, he goes back to uh, Abraham. Uh, he's, he's trying to emphasise the descent of Jesus as the hope of the Jewish nation, right, the culmination of, of Jewish history. Luke, however, goes a lot, lot further back. Uh, he goes all the way back, in fact. And, and I want to point out for you two ways in which Luke's genealogy emphasises the uniqueness of Jesus. First, notice those words that are almost the last words of chapter 3. Uh, the son of Adam. Now, isn't that interesting? Think, think about it, just for a sec. Where are we in Luke's gospel broadly at the moment? We're, we're in the end of chapter 3. Why does Luke put a genealogy here? This is a question I was really unsure of for quite a long time. 
Why not at the start of his gospel? If I was going to do it, I'd put it there. The second option would be to put it at the moment that Jesus is born, right? Um, you know, when Jesus was born, he was the son of Joseph, the son of so-and-so. Uh, and, and the answer is because Luke is contrasting Jesus. Uh, the son of God with whom he is well pleased is being contrasted with the other son. This whole genealogy is a history of fallen sinners, of fallen men with whom God was not well pleased. God worked remarkably through many of these people, but none of them, all the way back through them all to Adam, uh, to those first sinners, Adam and Eve, none of them were the perfect children of God. They all carry the legacy of Adam's sin, but with Jesus, we see that the new and better Adam has come. With Jesus, something new is happening. Sin has no hold on him, unlike all of these people being named. And God is pleased with him, unlike all of these people being named. God is pleased with a man. This is a unique moment in human history. And that leads us to the, the second thing that we see here, which is that Luke doesn't just go back to the first son, Adam, but in fact he goes all the way back to the first Father, God, the creator of all. The fact that Luke carries it all the way back to God, uh, God's action in creating Adam is meant to point us toward the fact Jesus is the hope of all of humanity. He's the culmination of God's history-spanning plan. By going all the way back, we see that every human in history is caught up in this. You know, you start with Adam or even go back to Noah and, and everyone in the world is covered in what's happening here, right? Everyone is descended from those guys. And as such, Jesus is the only hope for anyone. Luke's trying to spread this. He's trying to say all of humanity is involved here. Jew, Gentile, man, woman, uh, peasant, president, you know, everyone. I don't think we have peasants these days, but anyway, maybe it's some places uh, to some extent, this just shatters my mousetrap analogy, by the way. You know, in, in a lot of ways, Luke's basically saying the ball's been rolling since the start. Uh, God has been inexorably working uh, his plan from the beginning of time. And this son of God with whom he is well pleased, who will undo the curse of sin and reveal the glory of God to the whole world, is the goal that's always been in view. And so stepping back, do you see, see how this whole, this whole passage brings us Jesus, the unique Jesus, the messianic king, the one saviour of the world, God himself. And yet this is where it gets a bit trippy. Because come back with me again, and we'll see that although Jesus is in every way unique, and we wouldn't deny that, he also demonstrates who we become in him. Do this, we'll, we'll move through those three big sections again, the descent of the Holy Spirit, the declaration of the Father, and the genealogy. But, but we should just add, just, just before those things, uh, the fact that Jesus gets baptised. And that alone is an act of him leading us in the way that we should go, of him identifying with us. You know, baptism, what was baptism? Baptism was a sign of uh, entrance into the community of God's people through repentance of sin turning from sin to God. And as such, it doesn't really make all that much sense, does it, for Jesus to get baptised, 
right? Like, like, do you see that? He wasn't a sinner, so he didn't need to repent of sin. Uh, he wasn't distant from God. He didn't need to enter in. But Jesus gets baptized because he's our representative. And so he fulfills the requirements of righteousness that we need to fulfill, that a sinful people need to fulfill, even though he's not a sinful person. When he went to the cross, he went as a man who had done all righteousness. When Matthew records the baptism, he tells us that Jesus uh, says to John that the reason he's to do it is to fulfill all righteousness. And as such, Jesus' baptism fulfills the righteousness we needed. And it also demonstrates the way to follow him in righteousness. And, and we are to be baptized like him uh, but, but now let's, let's go through those three, three big sessions, uh, sections. So first of all, heaven opens, the spirit descends on Jesus. Clearly setting him apart, clearly defining his divinity, right? But at the same time that the perfect divinity of Jesus is on, is on display, there's something else happening that's really important. The perfect humanity of Jesus is also on display. Remember how Jesus is all God and all man? We're seeing that here. Now you might look around you uh, in the world today and think that doesn't really look like the humanity that I'm familiar with, uh, but, but that's kind of the point. Except for Jesus, all of humanity was fallen. Except for Jesus, none of humanity is how it's meant to be. Uh, but Jesus doesn't just show us how much higher he is than us. He shows us the heights we were created to attain to. Humanity was made to be infused with the presence of God, not to be God. He's unique in that, but to be infused with his presence through his spirit dwelling in us. Since the fall back in, in Genesis chapter three, we have lived separated from God. But now here comes a guy who as clearly as heaven itself opening in the visible presence of the spirit coming down on him, he's not separated. Here is a man living outside of the fall. Here is how unfallen humanity is meant to look. In verse 16, which we looked at last week, John declared to the crowd, I baptize you with water, but there's one coming who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And then here comes Jesus right immediately afterwards. And once he receives the baptism of water, he's immersed in the Holy Spirit. Do you see... So you see that he's, what he's doing here. What he's doing is in part an act that invites us to follow him and to experience the same. He is demonstrating this is how it looks. The community of God, the people of God are infused with the spirit of God. And when we get to, to Luke's second book, the book of Acts, uh, written by the same guy as a sequel to this book, uh, what happens right there at the start, right? The Spirit of God falls on the disciples of Jesus in a, in a visibly similar way to this. The Spirit of God falls on them, and that, that's not to say that the visible presence of God should be there every time that a person is saved. That's obvious because immediately after the Spirit falls on those guys, they go and declare the gospel outside, and thousands believe, and we don't get, and the fire came down again. But but the, the Spirit of God has come to live in every believer, is what we're getting here, and to empower us in the gospel-shaped life that we are to live. 
And then, then look at the declaration of the father again. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Now, now Jesus and Jesus alone is the Messiah, right? Jesus and Jesus alone is the son of God, the eternal son of God from forever for forever in that sense. But in Jesus, we are called into being the children of God. <laughs> I'm sorry, that reality takes my breath away. It's like the, the Apostle John wrote in one of his letters. He says, how great is the love that the Father has poured out on us that we should be called the children of God. How great is that love? It's beyond measure. In fact, Paul writes about this relationship of Jesus and us. He says, for our sake, he, that is the Father, made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For those who have trusted in Jesus we have received his righteousness. And when the Father looks at us, and, and remember who you are, right? Remember the failings of this last week. When the Father looks at you, if you are in Christ, he sees a son or a daughter who he loves and with whom he is well pleased. A, a child he loves. Did you know that? The, the devil, even our own hearts, our own inner voice, would often have us believe that God would look on us with profound disappointment. And yet because of his great love in sending Jesus, when God looks at a believer, these words could be used of them. You are my beloved child. With you I am well pleased. And then we, then we get to the genealogy, right? Fun town. It's, it's interesting, we, we can draw two big things from this genealogy for us as well. This list of people from Adam through to Joseph is a list of deeply flawed people, and yet many of them are still people that God used powerfully for his purposes, for his Jesus-honouring purposes. You know, you look at people like Abraham and David. I'm sorry, I'm going to go for the obvious guys. We can, we can look at the others another time. We don't have time for all of them. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and think about it. These, these two, if you look at them in any detail, you see two deeply flawed men, two children of the first Adam in so many ways, right? And yet two men who were used powerfully for the glory of the second Adam, the better Adam, Jesus. Abraham was so often a coward uh, to, the, to the detriment even of his wife. And they would go into a country and he was scared of the kings there. And he'd say, she's just my sister. And he'd let her be married to the king there because she was apparently a bit attractive. Um, and yet God uses Abraham, the sinner, and gives him the, the promises. And through him, he brings about the family and the nation that Jesus would come from. David was called the man after God's own heart, and yet he was such a flawed king, guilty of really significant sin. You know, um, who thinks murder is a significant sin? You, know? you don't actually have to raise your hand. I'm going to assume it. And yet God used David to point forward to the better king who was coming, to King Jesus who would be perfectly conformed to the heart of God. And because David repented, God used him to draw people nearer to God. 
And so he pointed forward to the king who would draw in all of God's people. And so the first thing that this list reminds us of is that with Jesus at the center of history, God uses flawed people like David and Abraham, like you and like me, to bring glory to the name of Jesus. Your flaws do not overcome the power of God to work through you. But second, the genealogy reminds us that although each one of us is born under the first Adam, if we have believed in Jesus, then we are no longer his children. We are sons of the better Adam, sons and daughters of the better Adam, of Jesus. By the power of Jesus' death and resurrection, God leads us out of what we were. And he is leading us out of what we were. By the power of the Holy Spirit in us, which was one for us through the cross of Christ, God is transforming his people into the image of Jesus. Romans chapter 8 says, now these are, these are familiar words for a lot of people, right? For those whom God, who, who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. People love that passage. And I love that passage, I'll be honest. But so often we miss what comes next. Paul explains what the definition of good is for us, what that purpose of God is for us. He says in the next verse, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. God's working to make us the image of his son. Good defined. He's working to make us like Jesus. Our spiritual descent is no longer from Adam. It's from Jesus. And so we can expect to see God working through our lives in a way that makes us more and more visibly the children of God, not of Adam. Now, do you see how those two elements of the uniqueness of Jesus and the example of Jesus kind of work together? Because Jesus walked in spirit-filled ministry to the cross, we can now be filled with the Spirit. Because the eternal Son lived in perfect righteousness, died to take away our sin and rose to give us new life, we are now adopted as the children by faith in him, by the children of God, to be the children of God. Because the new and better Adam, the hope of humanity, the culmination of history has come in Jesus, we, a new people, are able to live radically as his people here and now. Jesus is unique, and yet he leads us into what we're supposed to be. Jesus is not just the example even of, of what we're meant to be. He is the power by which it is achieved. So I want to I leave you with, with a couple of questions today uh, to, to mull over. Feel free to come have a chat about these afterwards if you want to. Uh, last week I, I chucked the question out there, is there anyone that you have placed outside of the grace of God? Are there people in your life that you would say they're never going to be reached? And, uh, and we saw the reminder in John the Baptist last week that God's spirit can work to bring people to repentance powerfully, regardless of where a person is or has been, and regardless of, of us and our flaws.
This week, I want to ask, in your heart and your mind, have you started to assume that God can't act powerfully through you? It's a different take on the question, right? Maybe, maybe we could make it more specific. Are there ways, specific ways that you've counted impossible for God to work through you? I think, I think the obvious and easy one to, to reach for is reaching the lost, right? We see people who don't know God and seem content to walk in that. And we quietly believe God can't make disciples through me. Maybe if John Piper came to town, right? Maybe he could do it through him. Or if, or if we you know, did a little resurrection on Billy Graham and, and, and got him to pop along, and maybe God could make disciples through him, but, but not through me. But, but here, what we see here, Jesus has called you in. He's given you the power of the Spirit, and he's made you a beloved child of God. There is no longer any limits to what God can do through you. Let me, let me tackle another one that I, that I think is really common and related to that. We can fall into thinking, God can't use me to grow these people who are around me right now. He can't make me a, a grower of disciples. Now, that's something he calls every Christian into being. He's a disciple maker and a disciple. One of the fundamental truths of making and growing disciples that we really always need reminding of is that the spirit of God is the primary disciple maker. Ultimately, he does it. In, in John's gospel, chapters 14 and 15, Jesus promises that when the spirit comes to us, which he has come to us now, he will teach us the truth and remind us of the teaching of Jesus and he will bear witness about Jesus. He's the one who teaches us about Jesus and grows us to be like Jesus before anyone else does and through anyone else who does. So if the spirit of God is in you and if you have believed in Jesus, then he is. Uh, if, you, if the spirit is in you, then you can trust that the spirit is able to grow God's people through you. He is able to speak the gospel to your fellow Christians into the situations of our lives powerfully because he is in you. Maybe just finishing, I'll chuck one last little invitation out there, which is that if you have not received the spirit of God, maybe if you've placed yourself outside of the grace of God, and you've said the one work that God can't do in me is that he can't save me. Let me just very quickly say, David, murderer, adulterer, saved. Abraham, I mean, come on, he let his wife sleep with kings. Um, what have you done <laughs> that puts you outside of God's grace? God's grace is without limit because his son came and died for your sin. And that pays for anything and draws you in. And so the call of God is on your life to believe. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you that you lead the way. Uh, the whole history of humanity is one great testament to the fact that we can't do it on our own. That without you, we are fallen 
and we are totally fallen, unable to rise. We are like bodies in the grave. They don't get back out again usually. And yet through the sending of your son, you call our names and we come out of the grave. Through the sending of your son, you lead the way into the kingdom, into the community of believers. Through the sending of your son, you make us more like him. What a wonder. Lord, I know my sin. I know my insufficiency. And yet you are able to work in me and in every person here to make us more like Jesus. To fill us with the spirit. Lord, you look on your sons and daughters and you are pleased with us. And you work, Lord, for in, in loving grace for our transformation to make us more and more like that perfect son, Jesus. Lord, we ask that you would use the lives of the people here powerfully for your glory. That you would show people what Jesus is like as we become more like him. And that your gospel would go out through it. We pray it in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.